Okay, facing the question, what shall I do? In daily human life, we are always encountering some problem, contradiction or confusion. So very naturally, we want to escape from problems and find a better way of living. Seeking a calm mind, we study philosophy, psychology, religion, even physics and mathematics, believing they can show us who we are and what the meaning of life is. We study, we choose certain ideas, and then we try to depend on them to help us build up a peaceful life. Unfortunately, life is very difficult to understand only through ideas. No matter how long you study, there is still some problem that leaves you in confusion. There is always a question left behind. What shall I do? If you try to answer this question through Western philosophy, you find it tends to be divided into two types, rationalism, understanding human life through intellectual thought, and empiricism, understanding life through sense experience. But depending on philosophical ideas to tell you how to live can drive your life toward doubt or pessimism. For instance, if you try to live on the basis of empiricism, then your way of life is already based on rationalism. You are depending on an idea created by your intellectual process, which tells you this is the right way to live. When you realize uh, how shaky this is, you have to doubt about empiricism, philosophy or any ideas, and you don't know what to depend on. You don't trust anything. But there is one thing you can trust in. Right here is a man or a woman who is called by your name. Before you have doubt or pessimism, you are already here. You exist right in the middle of reality, which means your life is fully alive right now. We are human beings. <coughs> we cannot destroy our thinking process. So we should think. You can, you can use science, philosophy, and psychology to understand your individual life in a certain way. But whatever you understand in that way is not something true that you can depend on. Something true you can depend on is something you have to do. To really understand the meaning of life, we have to go beyond thinking and experience the vast scale of life directly with our own body and mind. To know who you really are, all you, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, uh, next person. To know who you really are, all you have to do is just be in reality as it really is. There you discover the natural state of your existence and realize the ultimate principle of existence called Dharma. Then under all circumstances, Whatever happens in life, you can depend on your real self. Usually we depend only on the small self we see from our egoistic telescope. We are constantly trying to build up our egoistic self according to our culture, customs, education, and knowledge. Your small self is always trying to get something or escape from something. It is always making a noise. I care or I don't care. I like myself very much or I am a bad boy. 
some particular fact comes up and makes your thinking sway away to the right and then sway to the left, just like a pendulum. But whatever you think, still there is a question left behind. What shall I do? Day after day, that question is the final situation you have to face. So sometimes we, um, we demean the small self, but it's, it's really like we need to combine the two. But I was on the phone with my son and I was, I was demeaning photography because it just showed things from one perspective. And he really, uh, he really was uh, mean. And he said, he said that I was all wrong and that you learn so much by seeing things from a single perspective. You know, for example, his, one of his favorite photographers was Mybridge, who did all these experiments uh, showing um, horses running and men running. And we got to see for the first time, like whether all the legs were up in the air off the ground, that kind of thing. So, so the small self is really important. We see things with that. For example, it might be the small self that's angry in a certain situation. So it's really, it's really not our enemy, but, but part, you know, gives us information. The problem is when we're just there, right? When we don't have the whole, when we don't see the whole picture. So I thought that was great. So I complained to my son, my wife about my son, you know, straightening me out. I said, next time we have kids, we're going to, they're just going to say, yes, dad. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to figure out how before we do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think I'm next. Shakyamuni Buddha taught us how to approach this question. Instead of paying attention only to ideas, we also have to pay attention to the real state of our existence. We have to pay attention to the whole reality of human life, how that is spiritual practice. So he's making the inference. You could easily read this, that, that, that this small self is a problem, yeah. right? That's why I said what I said, that it's, it's only a problem if that's the only place you go for information to me. Okay, after me is Nelda. Yes. Zen teaches the simplest way of spiritual practice, just sit. But just sit doesn't mean to sit passively. It is sitting based on deepening both your intellectual and experiential understanding of our existence. So after you study, accept that your life is already present in the big scale of reality. Then let's pay attention to the reality of where you are. This is the meditation practice called Zazen. If you practice Zazen in the Zendo meditation hall, many beings are there with you. Everything is coming up like spring water oozing from the ground, accommodating to circumstances that are constantly changing from moment to moment. You, the other practitioners, your cushions, the sounds of cars going by outside and birds singing, all are living together in peace and harmony at this one time and place. So all you have to do is just sit down on your cushion 
and accept the natural state of your existence, including all the beings that coexist with you right now. Oh, Malen, did you want to read? You no, I'll just, yeah, I, I noticed, but I'll just listen. Thank you. Okay. But you will ask questions. We need your questions. Okay. Good. Okay, so we're back to you, Chet. Okay, thank you. Uh, but if you experience pain when you're sitting zazen, what should you do? Should you just accept pain as it is, ignoring the intellectual understanding of where the pain comes from? No, it's not enough. You have to understand what the pain is and learn how to take care of your pain intellectually. Still, if you take care of your pain intellectually, will you be free from pain? No, pain is still there. So finally you ask, what should I do? Should I escape from pain or stay with it? What do you think, Chad? Wow, it's, uh, you know, it's hard because our mind can't capture all this stimulation. You know, I, my mind is so small. In moments, I get very big and I can understand and I get caught in the littleness of it. And it's like, how can I capture all the perspectives, you know, with a, just a, a mind that's like a small engine that doesn't have the fullness. So I struggle with it constantly, but I love that moment when I realized that's just the way it is. That's so I'm still constantly struggling in my pain, but also embracing that as just as it is. So when you see dotted lines that there's a little number you can see in the Kindle and it says 70 and that means 70 people underlined that section, the section, the next paragraph. So Christian, you're very lucky getting to read a 70. Yeah, clearly I'm, I'm, I am very fortunate to, to, to be, to be here for this. Okay. Um, all right. All you have to do is the actual practice of facing your pain and moving towards the pain. Be with it, be in it, and be on it. When you move towards the pain, your action simultaneously deepens your life. Deepening means you approach the lively energy of life at the core of your being. Daniel. When you manifest oh. simplicity in life like this, you experience a sublime serenity and tranquility. Then within this tranquility, with one step, you realize a profound state of being that is completely beyond any kind of idea. It enables you to be present with calmness, humility, and stability. At that time, you can experience pain directly and take care of it intellectually without attaching to either empiricism or rationalism. Whatever problem you are facing, if you have this attitude towards your situation, you can take care of it with a calm mind. I'm curious to hear from long-term practitioners. I, yeah, I'm having an, well, yes, of course, I'm bumping up against this. So you're in a car wreck or at war, someone shoots you in the chest, open wound, excruciating pain. And, I, and, and, and 
and I'm not naive, I understand the tremendous benefit on all on many different levels from learning um, to sit with pain. I also know that sometimes pain tips us into a place that's that's worse than sitting with pain. I, I mean, I get all of that. I think it's great to to stretch our patience with pain, but I just um. So experienced practitioners, have you ever been to this point described in the very last part of this paragraph? I'm curious. What do you hey, think, Donna? Hey, Tim, can you turn back one page? Thank you. But Donna, what uh, do you think? Uh, yes, uh, I think it, it can be done. I'm thinking about some sessions in years past. Um, however, uh, I, you know, I don't sit with pain like that anymore. Um, <laughs> in part, I guess it's, you know, the, uh, I can't even remember the last time I went to Zendo sitting, so, <laughs> you know, sitting at So that's a low level pain. So I just, no, no. And don't, don't get me wrong, Donna. I mean, I've sat with all those intense pains when you're sitting, but but I kind of do like, um, you know, B bite zero, Uh, 29 hours of labor, um, seven or eight gunshot wound to the chest uh, with burning my flesh, 10 and so I'm asking, since this is sort of a very broad stroke statement about sitting with pain, I, again, I don't know what it means by what level of pain, but it seems to say that no matter what pain, that the latter part of this paragraph can be accomplished. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm a nurse who has dealt with pain a lot, a whole lot. Um, and also, of course, just like uh, the the rest of you are talking about the pain of sitting. And, you know, I think we're, what I'm hearing so far is we're pretty much in agreement that that's a really interesting thing to do when you're sitting with this, that degree of, that degree of pain. Um, And it's pretty interesting because sometimes it really, uh, it does what he says it does. It takes you sort of deeper into what's going on, but, as far as traumatic pain, chronic cancer pain, <laughs> you know, I, I think it would it would be uh, kind and compassionate to take to do something about that pain. I think we're. I mean, I I also think if I was in pain, uh, having that kind of pain, I would play with it a little bit. I would just out of curiosity, you know, but. Um, but uh, there, I would say there's uh, no shame in taking uh, uh, medication for pain of the, at that degree. Yeah, just just to add something to that, Ellen, I think that that's really interesting. I mean, of course, the extreme level. Of, I mean, that extreme level of pain to feel that is a very human thing. That yeah. that there's we're humans, and so we have to experience that if if we're going to right and. You know, if we take a cue from the, the four noble tasks or truths, however you want to phrase them, but the whole idea of, you know, embracing suffering and the totality of experience, 
Um, I think like what you're saying, Alan, is is getting deeper into it, into the pain here. Um, you know, in that deepness, trying to let it go, see yourself doing that, and then creating in the moment another direction that you're looking towards and thinking about and and moving towards consciously. So, anyways. It's interesting when I look at my life uh, from in the rearview mirror, when I dealt with pain that was uh, too overwhelming, I just numbed myself. And it seems like it's um, when I look back on it, it's, um, you know, there's this threshold in which I'll either numb or then slowly start processing and still kind of grow my container to deal with it. So it's fascinating to see, like, what are my limits of pain where I'll just shut down? And when can I actually slowly kind of process and ebb away until I get some um, ability to hold that incredibly painful, whatever it is. So, but man, um, I don't know. I don't know how you meet it when it's so overwhelming that it's going to be too big for your system. And so, uh, you know, I for, try to forgive myself whenever I can't get that and keep coming back to it. Other people too. It's like, there's a natural way to process it, but how do you have that energy to process something that can be overwhelming at times? I don't know. I think we talked last time about this idea, this step of observation. So you say, this pain is so overwhelming. And that's be, that goes beyond just having the pain, doesn't it? Jeff? Yeah, exactly. It gives me a handle to start at least saying, okay, it's so overwhelming. I'm not going to handle it now, but at least I get a, an idea of, you know. It's like an awareness, an awareness yeah. of it. Yeah. 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 Maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't see any reason not to experiment like that. But, you know, I'm trying to remember, was it Suzuki Roshi or somebody who said, yeah, I, I know about pain and how to how to uh, sit with pain and all of that. But at some point, was it he who had cancer? And he said, at some point, I, I said, yes, give me give me the morphine. I, I, I wish I could remember. I read it somewhere. You know, I don't know, some great teacher who said at some point I, I needed something. Crooked cu cucumber. Huh? It was in crooked oh, cucumber. Oh, was it? Okay. Oh, that's what I recall. Oh, Peg is that. Hey, Peg would like to say something. <laughs> well, I think it's really important um, to recognize, first of all, that we don't sit so that we never have pain. We sit so that we can meet, meet pain without making it worse. And all of our strategies and all of our struggles against the pain, the resistance to it makes it worse. So it's not a question of whether you're gonna take medication for pain. This isn't about being some kind of macho samurai or something. This is really about how we understand our relationship to pain in such a way that we don't make it worse. And uh, all of our contractions around it, all of our negotiations, all of our uh, frantic thoughts, our panic, all of that makes it worse. So it's not like you can suddenly make the pain not affect you. It's more like, can you stop making it worse? That's why we practice and we practice with low level discomfort in sitting as a way to build that capacity so that we have uh, the ability to turn toward it and to understand, okay, this is the pain. I'm not gonna make this worse. So that tells more about 
you can take care of it. Taking care of it isn't getting rid of it. That's right. It's really taking care of yourself with it. So it'd be, it'd be cruel to say to somebody, well, you shouldn't take medication. You should just practice with it. That's, that's not the way this works. You do what you need to do to take care of your body. So if your body's in so much pain, it can't rest, then you need help with that. And we have medicine for that. So at the same time, you try to avoid all of the struggle and uh, all of the thoughts, emotion thoughts that only make it much, much worse. Those are the second darts that the Buddha talked about, the second arrow. It's almost like um, the, the things that make the pain worse can trick you and can, they, they have often tricked me into thinking that is the pain. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, to be, to be able to stay present without uh, this contraction that, uh, that amplifies it or makes it worse is our practice. That's what we practice with. So it's important, actually, for people to sit with discomfort. It's really important because that's the training. That's the training in, in discovering, oh, my resistance makes this so much worse. My, you know subtle attempts to shift my position or my, um, you know, thrashing around mentally is just making things worse. So you get to learn how to turn toward it um, and to stay present and to stop making it worse. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Kind of reminds me of professional athletes I always thought that they must have turned to the physical pain to embrace, embrace it and alchemize it to a pleasure point that could allow them endure so much physical pain. And maybe it's similar in this way, if we can alchemize this pain in a, whatever the pain that we meet in a wisdom practice, we meet it in a different way um, that will turn it into something else. But you have to be very careful not to turn it into a masochistic project. Right, right. To strengthen, to think that that somehow is gonna give you even more strength if you can just feel more pain rather than that's tough. Yeah. You don't have to um, amplify pain. Life will provide plenty for you. You don't, <laughs> you don't need to try and drum it Stick up. Stick it out. Yeah. And that's why the Buddha taught um, uh, in opposition to ascetic practices that created pain and suffering in the body. It seems like there are so many Buddhist practitioners who have been cracked open by great pain so in one sense, you know, I'm always wondering, like, when you see um, the movie we saw last Friday, where there was so much uh, pain that, is it a requirement, though, um, to crack you open to a... Uh... No, it's just instructive, you know? So, no, it's not, it's not a requirement. There, there's just the pain and the way we either... Um, amplify it, make it much worse, or we stay with it and, and observe whatever we observe or whatever we can learn in it. Or the third option is, of course, to use some kind of addiction <laughs> so, we not, so we don't notice it. 
yeah, that's one ditch. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's yeah. surfing the internet or whatever. Um, yeah. And of course, another option is to use it to help you be stronger. Right. You understand everything that's, that comes to you in life is a, is a training ground. When you understand that, you're not seeking out particular kinds of experiences. You recognize, oh, whatever's arising is the training. So um, it's something to train with. Yeah, to use another sports metaphor, you, you just brought up Chet. Uh, coach K, the Duke basketball coach, has a philosophy that he says, next play. And the whole notion, it's very Zen when you think about it, that uh, in each moment, just forget, forget about what just happened. It's all about the next moment, the next play, and just living in the moment um, with, with a fresh creative mind in that next moment. Yeah. Okay, trusting in self, who's reading now? But see, I think this is the point of this last sentence. Whatever problem you're facing, if you have this attitude toward your situation, you can take care of it with a calm mind, including saying, I'm going to need something for this pain, right? Yeah. Okay. There was actually a request, Kim, to go back to the last page. Yeah, I did for in the chat. Oh, is that was that okay? Sorry. Who who read last? Oh, do you? So I think it I'm was me. One. Yeah, I think I'm the next one. Yeah. Uh, Emily, did you want us to reread something from this page? No, no. I just saw I saw the chat, and I also thought it would be nice to see this page. Oh, okay. I'm all set. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Trusting in self, uh, Zen Buddhism is not a philosophy like rationalism or empirism. Zen is actual life. But when you study Zen, sometimes it may seem that Zen denies the value of intellectual understanding and depths only on, on de and depends only on direct experience. For example, I'm always telling people how they can learn the meaning zazen meditation but they won't actually know what zazen is until they experience it so after i talk finally i have to say please sit down and practice zazen or i can explain what water is but to understand water you have to drink it so i say please drink a cup of water but then people immediately think zen means don't think just sit just drink that is Zen. If you live like this, your life is a hippie style. <laughs> Cody, did you get skipped? <coughs> no, I already read. I was the last one to read before oh, Daniel. You were? Oh, I'm getting mixed up. Okay. In San Francisco in the 1960s, there were many young people called hippies. One day I came across a hippie style Zen student on a train and asked him where he was heading for. He said, I don't know, I just rely on my feet. Well, that way of life seems to be freedom, but I don't think it is freedom, it is confusion. If you live in that way, maybe it's because you think it's not necessary to make any effort to deepen your life or build up your life for your future 
or for the sake of future generations. Maybe you say, I don't have to care about the future. All I have to do is just be present right here, right now. But actually, you cannot live like that. You cannot control your life according to ideas of caring or not caring. Life is completely beyond that. During the Second World War, I was a high school boy sent to the southern part of Japan to be an airplane mechanic in the army. The situation there was terrible and always changing very rapidly. If you think about it even a little bit, you realize there is a chance you will have to die. So I didn't think about the <coughs> past or the future. Every day I just thought, I don't care. In other words, I didn't know where I was heading. Did you, did you skip a couple people? Between Emily and me. Uh, I think you skipped Ivan. Ivan. Ivan, good, yes. Anyone else? Okay. Then one day I heard an airplane drop a big bomb. Immediately I jumped into a hole and chanted the name of Amitabha Buddha asking for help. In that very moment, I did not actually live according to I don't care. When the bomb came, I tried to save my life. So what is my life? My life is my life, but my life is also something more. It is something broad, something vast and alive beyond my narrow egotistic ideas. This is the real reality of my existence. That's really wonderful. Mm. Next. Kim, who's next? I think now, I think you are now there. Okay. What, what about Mylene? Mylene isn't reading tonight. Oh, okay. In San Francisco, when I asked the student I met on the train where he was heading, he said, I don't know. I just rely on my feet. This is not a good answer. I often say, when the morning comes, just get up. But that just get up doesn't mean you get up ignoring your future, your hope, your destination. If you don't have a destination, you cannot just get up. Of course, you can get up in the ordinary way, but if you want to go deep into your life and learn who you really are, you should have a destination. You should know where you are heading. If so, where are you heading? Know where you are heading, but don't attach to your destination. Did you want me to read? Yes. Okay. I'll be, I, I'm after Nelda then. Okay. Know where you are heading, but don't attach to your destination. If you are riding on a train, just be intimate with the train, with yourself, the other passengers, and all the circumstances around you. Then the big scale of self appears. Big self is very quiet. But if I ask where you are heading, you can say, I'm going to the Zendo. That's enough. Why do you get up in the morning? I want to do Zazen. Saying I want to do Zazen is not an idea. It is a vivid activity. You accept the feeling of sleepiness. You accept your emotions that are creating lots of complaints. And then you just get up. That's enough. This is Zen practice. It's a very simple practice. Whoever you are, Wherever you are, whatever you do, your life is already present in real reality. 
that is your real self, your true self. To realize this truth, all you have to do is take care of your small, noisy self is your big, quiet self. Then, at that time, your life is very calm and you can get up in the morning with stability and imperturbability. I wanna, uh, that's such a nice line. One <laughs> about the small, uh, the big, big self taking care of the small self or right. that one. Yeah. Yeah. All you have to do is take care of your, I love this. All you have to do, you know, like, <laughs> like it's a piece of cake. It's simple. <laughs> okay. I think we're back at the beginning now. Okay. All right. Um, your real self is always with you. You cannot escape it. Finally, the real self is the only thing that you can trust in. If you want to learn what human life really is and know the truth of Buddha's teachings, there is no other way than starting to learn what the self is. This one thing that you can depend on is something you have to research. You have to understand what it is. So instead of seeing your life only through the narrow ego, e, um, ego, egoistic, egoistic telescope, constantly keep your eyes open to seeing with a broader perspective, even if you don't understand it exactly. To fully understand human life, you have to go deep into you and see human life more deeply. The depth of life is your destination, but don't attach to it. Just constantly try to deepen your life. This is spiritual life. Through spiritual practice, you can deepen your life. You can really know what is at the bottom of human life. That is the teaching of Shakyamuni Buddha and the emphasis of Zen Buddhism. So let's learn who we are. Studying the self. One day when I was in Japan and training in Japan, I was serving Iko Hashimoto Roshi and a group of senior monks at Ihaji Monastery. They were talking about a big ceremony to be held on the seven. Hundredth anniversary of Iha Dogen Zinji's death. They were discussing the meal, how many people to expect, how much food we should buy how the kitchen should be managed, that sort of thing. Uh, Hashimoto Roshi started talking about something, but it was off the mark uh, because he was a very important Roshi who spent all his time doing zazen, teaching and guiding the monks. Another monk immediately told him, you don't understand how the kitchen is managed, so you should just keep quiet. Hashimoto Roshi didn't get angry at the monk. He just la laughed uh, with a very deep voice. Uh, his laughter didn't disturb anybody. It created a very relaxed and harmonious feeling and everyone else laughed too. Hashimoto Roshi... Uh, 
Oh, that's, sorry. Uh, Hashimoto Roshi's laugh came from very deep practice on an everyday basis, a very simple, quiet practice, not something showy. To practice like this is to make the root of your life strong. An indescribable fragrance comes forth from every pore of a human being who manifests the deep root of life with the human body. An inconceivable smile comes forth. When you see Buddha represented in a statue, this is a Buddha's smile. Five stages of learning. In Zen Buddhism, there are five stages we go through to deepen our life and learn who we are. In the beginning, we see a shallow picture of human life. By living according to a shallow way of thinking, you can be very practical, smart, and reasonable. You can master philosophy, languages, or become a success in business. You understand everything with your common sense. So people respect you as a philosopher or a, or a businessman. But if you don't understand the real significance of human life, people don't respect you deeply from the heart. There is no depth, no charm or fascinating quality to your personality, and no one is impressed by your life. But then maybe something happens. You sense there is something more to your life. Having that awareness is a turning point, which is called arousing the way-seeking mind. This is the first stage. It leads you to go in a different direction because once you have this awareness, you want something more. That is the second stage. The second stage is your way-seeking mind giving you an opportunity to practice. So you take one step inside the spiritual world and then, and that one step takes you somewhere deeper than what you have known before. Once you take that one step, you feel you have, have to keep going. So you research, study, and continue to practice. The Buddhas and ancestors have shown us the top of the mountain. So you never give up until you reach it. When you reach the top, this is the third stage. But after reaching, I think this is interesting that uh, just like we've been talking about how jumping off the 100-foot pole is just the beginning. You think reaching the top of the mountain is getting somewhere. And what the one thing I, maybe you can do is see, see out farther. But that's it. But after reaching the top of the mountain, you have to come back down into human society. Forget what you have attained and share your life with others. That is the fourth stage. The fourth stage is very difficult because still you have selfish views. You realize how wonderful spiritual life is and you want other people to believe in it. Consciously or unconsciously, you try to get people to pay attention to you. The more you are serious about spiritual life, the more you attach to your intellectual understanding. Knowing something intellectually is wonderful, but the more you put gaining knowledge first, the more it is difficult to let go of your thoughts. 
The real truth of life is completely beyond your intellectual understanding. So put your understanding aside sometimes and just live with your best effort. If you want to help people, give of your life first before giving something that has advanced in your thoughts. One more time. If you want to help people, give of your life first before giving something that has advanced in your thoughts. It's pretty hard to forget yourself and just help people. It takes time to learn this practice. But finally, you do touch the bottom of your life. This is the final stage. You forget yourself. And also you completely forget that you are sharing your life. You just stand back and support people without expecting anything. Sometimes with silence, sometimes with words, sometimes with actions, sometimes with a laugh. That is peace, real peace. Real peace is to become Buddha. Oh. Dogen's Forgetting the Self. Eihei Dogen, the 13th century founder of Soto Zen Buddhism in Japan, made a famous statement about the self that is a key for understanding his thought and religion and also Buddhist thought in general. Dogen Zenji says very simply about the essence of Buddhist practice. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be confirmed by all beings. To be confirmed by all beings is to be free from your body and mind and the body and mind of others. This, this is not a paragraph. Shall I read, read on? Yeah. This passage in Shobo Genzo, Genja Koan, the issue at hand, captures Dogen's basic thought in a very condensed way. It is a simple explanation, but difficult to understand because it's very deep. If you want to know the essential point of Buddha's teaching, please keep this saying in mind. Is that back? I believe that's back to me. Yep. Dogen says... Dogen says that studying the Buddha way is studying oneself. This is a common understanding, which is also found in Western philosophy. Socrates said you should know yourself. If you want to understand the human world, you have to know you because you and the world are not separate. Apologies if you hear my dog snoring in the background. Um, <laughs> Then Dogen says that studying oneself is forgetting the self. This is characteristic of the Eastern way of thinking. If you want to know who you really are, you have to forget yourself. Many people misunderstand this point thinking it is a pessimistic message that means you should ignore or destroy the experience of individual self. No, as we were just talking about, it's impossible to do that. Uh, also, it doesn't mean forgetting yourself in order to do something just as you like. Dojin's meaning of forgetting the self is the teaching of right understanding. There is no particular substance called self for you to attach to. Dogen's way of, of forgetting the self is to merge 
into the rhythm of life itself and experience the real meaning of existence. At that time, you realize your true self. When you pass by your small, egoistic self and pay attention to the big scale of self, you find that your life is supported by the whole world. Then your life is very broad. It contains all beings and influences all circumstances, imparting wonderful fragrances everywhere. Naga Riana, what is individual self? The Indian philosopher Naga Riana, who founded the Madhimika or Middle Way School of Buddhism in the second century, particularly emphasized how important it is to learn what the self is. It's difficult to understand Nagarayana because he always used contradictory logic to make his point. He's contradictory because everything is constantly changing, so there's nothing you can pin down. We always try to pin down what our self is, but according to Nagarjuna, there is nothing you can attach to as an individual self. Nagarjuna makes this argument in the Majamaka Shastra, chapter 18, an analysis of the individual self. Here are the first four verses translated by Frederick Strang. If the individual self, Atma, were identical to the groups, Skanda, then it would partake of origination and destruction. If the individual self were different from the groups, then it would be without the characteristics of the group. If the individual self does not exist, how then will there be something which is my own? There is lack of possessiveness and no ego on account of the cessation of self and that which is my own. He who is without possessiveness and who has no ego, he also does not exist. Whoever sees he who is without possessiveness or he who has no ego really does not see. When I and mine have stopped, there all then also there is not an outside nor an inner self. The acquiring of karma, upadana, is stopped. On account of that destruction, there is destruction of very existence. Self-consciousness. In the first verse, Nagarjuna represents individual self as Atma. Atma or Atman is a Sanskrit term that appears not only in Buddhism, but also in Indian philosophy. In Nagarjuna's time, the Indian Sakya philosophers understood Atman as a kind of permanent entity, a soul or spirit that exists forever without change. 
But in Buddhism, Atman is often translated as the self or individual self. In a sense, Atman is ego or the original nature of self-consciousness. Consciously or unconsciously, there is always I. This is your sense of being an individual self. So the question in the first verse is, how do you understand this I? Where is it? Where does it come from? Does it come from some divine entity that exists forever without change? From some special place like heaven, which is apart from human life? Or does it come from the human body and mind? The groups are the five skandhas. According to early Buddhist teachings, the skandhas are understood as five factors that constitute your human body and mind. Form, rupa, feeling, vedana, perception, samjnya, impulses, samskara, and consciousness, vijnana. Five skandhas is an analysis of the human world, and, is rep and it represents the truth of the human world. We experience life through our five skandhas. We know what truth is through our five skandhas. There is no experiencing or knowing anything without the five skandhas. The five skandhas are the total picture of impermanence. Human life exists within a constant process of creation, destruction, and change. So if the individual self is identical to the functioning of those factors of body and mind, then it is also is something that is impermanent. That's why Nagarjuna argued that if Altman, if Altman is identical to the skandhas, then Atman is also impermanent. And the concept of Altman as a permanent entity does not make sense. On the other hand, if the original nature of the self is a soul or spirit that exists forever apart from the skandhas, then it must be something different from human life. If that is so, then it has no characteristic by which it can manifest in the human world. If it doesn't manifest itself, how can we know it exists? No way. We cannot know because there is no way for us to experience or understand anything except our five skandhas, so we cannot say it exists. So, so uh, a question I have about, uh, I keep hearing about the five skandhas, but how about with our imagination? Can, can that be beyond, can we experience things through our imagination? Would that be beyond the five skandhas or is that still like thought it, or? Yes, it's still yeah. within the five skandhas. And, and imagination can have, um, can be shaped by any one of them, by the senses, you know, can be shaped by any, any of the skandhas. Oh, they probably are because, um, you know, we simply have the scent and then we imagine what it might be. Right. Yeah. Well, I'll figure out how we can do it. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Okay, this is a good stopping point, probably. Mm, is it that late?
Is that spelled wrong, Peg? Disappears? No. Oh, there's not two S's? Okay. I guess disappear. Okay. So we'll write for 10 minutes. I unmuted everyone but me and then rang the bell. <laughs> Peg, do you want to still say something? Your hand is still up. Oh, no, that was from before. <laughs> Who would like to share? I'll go. Thanks, Ivan. So if I get sick or I'm tired, is that the ego that is sick or tired? Is that, is that your question? Yeah. <laughs> That's as far as I got. But I was thinking about that, that passage where he says, you know, um, the big quiet mind should help the small noisy mind. Um, so I was just, um, I was just well, curious. Think, it's a practical that's, that's the inquiry, right? Is this body tired or am I making myself tired somehow? Um, mm. I'm stressed mm. out or, you know, um, so the, the, the question is, really where is this pain located or where is this tiredness and is it is it just that my body needs to rest and i've been working hard and now i'm tired um, and sometimes then it's it's not um, the body that needs rest but the mind right so so that's the inquiry that's the practice inquiry what is it that's tired? What is it that's in pain? I think the, a similar thing is with hunger. So, you know, sometimes we think we're hungry, but really 
we, we barely experience hunger, you know, as some people do in the world. Yeah, we may be restless, we may be bored, feel like it must be meal time because it's a certain hour. I think it's interesting, Peg, that you, the way you phrase that, because um, just as far as from a, an explorative meditative technique, of course, is simply to ask, what is this? Um, and, you know, to Ivan's point, you know, just asking that about ourselves, you know, it's, a, it's over and over again, what is this, what is this? It also helps create that perspective of, of our, that we're more than, of course, our body, you know, uh, our body is not ourself, right? And that, and back to that interconnective interdependence dynamic, that's, that's much, much greater. I think we have to stop thinking about things as problems and start thinking about them as situations. Yeah. So you've got a situation, you know, yeah, you're in Zazen, you feel very, very tired. Um, that's the situation you're in. There are other people around you. If you're in a typical Zendo, um, there's uh, um, your own sense of uh, belonging or not belonging. You're, so there's all kinds of things that are playing into this, right? So you're in a situation and then the situation becomes what needs to be done, for example, or um, what is having this experience? So, uh, so the, it's such a good inquiry because so much of the time we're jerked around by our mental gymnastics around whatever we're experiencing that we miss the actual experience. I love that question of how we're relating to it. And the hunger issue is like, what does that mean? And how do we relate to that feeling? And I think part of this chapter, which I love the studying the self, what is the self? And it goes perfectly with what Kim did Friday on the movie about this interbeingness. And I'm cheating because I'm bringing in something else outside of this, which is interbeingness is like how, how do it's really about how we're relating to anything that we're experiencing. Um, because we aren't this self, we're in the relationship with a hunger or relationship with other people or with what we perceive to be ourselves. So in that relating is like a natural way of entering what is that hunger and how do I relate to it? And what, you know, that I think is really exciting to see that, man, if I'm not a self, then what am I relating to and everything that I experience and feel and what is that relationship and how do I play a role in that relationship. Yeah, I mean, if your aspiration is to lose weight because your doctors told you that you're going to die if you don't, then those rumblings of hunger can be uh, greeted with a certain kind of happiness knowing that that's fat leaving the body, right? So instead of it being triggered by it, and we think of it as a primal thing, you know, if you're hungry, you're hungry, but it can also be a signal that you're being, that you're succeeding, right? That your body is shedding fat. So in that sense, it's not something that you even have to address immediately, right? So, so what happens is we have an interpretation of what our physical experience is or psychological experience. And, and, um, and we have decided some things are intolerable, like some things just can't be tolerated, but that's not really true usually. And sometimes we have no choice but to tolerate them. So 
that's what our practice is building is that foundation. I think Kim's talking, but he may be muted. <laughs> is it possible? Is it possible to forget the self? Who is it who forgets? My neighbor was stepping into the street when a speeding car was heading toward him. I reached out and pulled him out of the arm's way. Was it myself who did that? I don't remember thinking. I just remember acting. Is that a glimpse of forgetting? How does one cultivate that kind of selfish action? And then uh, there's a little drawing that. <laughs> Except I kind of goof because my neighbor is like twice as tall as I am. So <laughs> <laughs> proportions are off. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's a question we keep asking, I think, around here is, you know, so how do we do it? How do we do it? You know, and I keep thinking that these glimpses, these little times when we, when something happens, you know, as a hint. But yeah. to, to force it seems like today I'm going to be selfish, selfless. That doesn't seem to do it. No. It's, it's not... Um... I think there's a mistaken idea that you want to go around, you know, without any self. Um, when we, we live in a world in which um, there's self-presentation is part of our human experience, right? So, yeah. So I actually wrote a little bit about this. Um, uh, I said the validation for the presence of a self comes from the self. So the belief in the self is an interesting problem. It's, it's a, a situation of trying to see the eye with the eye, right? <laughs> you have to posit a self to search for the self. And the only validation for the presence of a self comes from the self. So the fiction is self-perpetuated, you might say. But obviously, the construct of the self serves very important functions in our relationships with each other and the rest of the world. It's not that it is wrong or bad, but we have a mistaken views of its permanence and solidity. In fact, it's more like a soap bubble, a candle flame, or something evanescent that gives the appearance of substance, but is in fact only a process like the inflation of the bubble or the combustion of the candle flame. Others seem to verify ourselves from their own impermanent, insubstantial self-constructs, and so we feel affirmed, or we feel aggrieved that the self reflected back to us does not match our own self-construct. Still, one has to have a driver's license to legally drive a car on the highway. In our society, there are many such markers that seem to represent evidence of an existent self. But what is really re represented by these traces in social institutions? The one who took the driver's test is long gone, unrecognizable, even a day later as the same person. There's a photo, some numbers and labels, but what do they really amount to? Do you look at it and think, yep, that's me, all right. So you have a body seemingly substantial, seemingly continuous, but of course we all know that is not true at the molecular level or the atomic level. We are, if anything, temporary assemblages in a constant state of self-creation and self-destruction. 
miniature universes, tiny ecosystems. Our fragile psychological well-being depends on everything going as we think it should. Our bodies, our emotions, our thoughts, other people, and the rest of the world. So that's that was what I was reflecting on in this concept of um, of self. You know, it's it's not something. Um, it, it it is something, and it isn't something, right? So it's um, it's a it's a construct that we use to function in the world, and we have ideas about that uh, being, you know, probably more permanent and solid than it really is. Yeah, I wrote a few things that. I think connect to that peg, yeah. like we had. Um, you know, it's interesting because we were talking about dualism last week and it's easy to, I think, fall into the trap of there's, there's an absolute self or there's no self, yeah. right? And I think that's what we're talking about. And really it's, it, I think the middle way is that, that fluid process of self, which is that provisional self that I think we're talking about and you know, another thing I wrote is that connects is, I mean, literally every year, um, scientifically speaking, we purge and regenerate a cell mass about as large as our body yearly. So I mean, we're literally being recreated. And so, I mean, millions of cells a second are being um, re recreated. So, you know, the idea of a permanent, impermanent self is, um, you know, not just something we're talking about from a um, you know, from a metaphysical standpoint, I mean, it's something that scientifically speaking is, is a real thing. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's very, it's very situational. You know, we all know that we're different selves in different situations, right? Right. So if you, if you insist on clinging to the idea that you're some permanent self, then you're not flexible enough to actually adapt to situations as they arise. So we all, I, basically, I think the idea is to hold the, the whole sense of self more lightly, not to negate it, but to just hold it more lightly, re recognize it's provisional, you know. Right, and that, help, that, I mean, that helps us keep, keep things in perspective too, as far as hanging on to things so tightly, like, oh, this is so important, or that's so important. Oh. When you hold things lightly, which is harder to do than you think, right? Um, it, it allows you to do that, I think. Yeah. I, I think of Whitman saying, do I contradict myself? <laughs> well, I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. It's yes. true for everybody, right? It's true for all of us. Almost anybody, if someone really followed you around, it, almost anybody could be caught in contradictions in their, their lives, you know, um, in their thoughts, in their actions, in their words. Um, that's just our human nature. I love part of the, the section, the five stages of learning. And I'm always reminded every time I'm, uh, Peg mentions an idea and uh, I can feel sometimes very profoundly a shift in who I am by uh, that learning, that curiosity and that learning and that new kind of framework to meet uh, the way I see the witness the world. So it's like really interesting. And that's part of the reason I participate so much here because I'm addicted to that stimulation that I'll work on that. This, this is a, a challenge for me, but the stimulation of changing my frameworks of how I show up in the world or how I see the world. And each time that happens, I've changed, you know, in a fundamental way. So it's really interesting to see before and after. It's like, yeah, seeing that evolutionary uh, movement of how I'm relating to a new concept or how I'm using curiosity to let go of my preformed ideas 
and uh, acceptance and new way of uh, dealing with the world in a creative new, uh, more uh, rich kind of dropping in sense. Oh, I have to go. Okay. Um, I want to tell everyone um, the Tiknahan film is still available. I just checked it out. And if you, so if you click on the Friday night, last Friday night film night, you'll see a link to it. But I would, I would look at it tonight because it said that it's just going to be available um, up to Monday and today's Monday. The other thing that I was thinking of in terms of self was um, when I've mentioned this idea, Dogen's thing to, to um, study the self is to, to study the Buddha way is to study the self um, to some therapists. They all said our first job in therapy is to create the self that people are coming selfless and you can't drop the self until you create it. So anyway, that's what, so I can imagine being selfless in the sense of, for example, when I was in college, I went to a psychiatrist and he said, uh, you know, um, you're your own best expert. And I said to him, you don't know my mother, <laughs> but, but really, you know, I didn't have a self. My self was my mother, you know, what my mother thought mm. I was, that kind of thing. So trying, you know, that's what he was trying to do is to establish some kind of self in there, I think. I think it creates that you're, once you um, have the pieces of a, a game of self, right, then you can play with it. And um, if you don't have that, then it's a lot harder to to know what to do with it. Christian, are you trying to say something? Oh, I, was, I was just going to say the game of self. That should clearly be a board game. <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy that. Well, th well, thank you, everyone. Thanks, guys. Yeah. See you. See you all next week. And next week. and if you haven't seen the Tiknahan movie, please see it. Fantastic. You don't, you don't need a ticket today. What's <laughs> <laughs> our next movie? <laughs> actually, actually, because of the great interest in the Tiknahan movie, we reinstituted the movie night, and we're going to have it. I think uh, it's on the calendar. The last. Uh, at the end of February, and oh. I was wrong. I said something to Chet, I think, that we couldn't use YouTube, but we can, and we can also oh. use a number of other venues. So Chet, uh, not Chet, uh, Shane, who's who's a like film buff and studied film in college, is going to try to find something that everyone will like that's about an hour long, that's maybe had some connection to Buddhism. So that was his challenge. So we'll see. So if you have any ideas, please let me know and I'll pass it on to Shane of a film we can see that we don't have to pay for. Okay. And it's not just paying like, you know, Netflix or Amazon, uh, $3 or $6. It's, they want a whole lot of money, like 200 Hmm. If it if it's uh, to a group, okay. That was one of my favorite activities last week. Watching that movie. 
uh, my, you know, out of the entire week, that one hour was uh, one of the best hours I spent of last week. So I'm looking forward to the next. And it was fun to, to have in our minds that we were doing this together. Even, yeah. You know, right. even though that was a, a little bit in our imagination. Maybe. I don't know. So anyway, uh, I'm going to share the picture of Dick Nahan. I have him here with his stocking cap as a young man. Just a second. And this is from the movie. Oh, so young. Okay, so uh, now I'll stop. Thank but you. There he is. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thank you.